get the chance to do a do-over, uh, a, a second time. So God tells him to arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am telling you. Um, once again, very similar to chapter one, except there are a couple differences here. And a couple of these differences is the ones that I want to, to, uh, to make known here. So the first obvious difference is that Jonah's, is Jonah's reaction, right? We see that here in, in, uh, in verse, in verse three, it says Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. That's exactly what he didn't do in the beginning of chapter one, right? He flees instead. So, uh, so far, so good. Right, the whale seems to have done his job, or the great fish has seemed to have done his job. He's learned a little something inside of the belly of the whale, and now this time, instead of fleeing, he he uh, obedient. He's obedient to God, and he goes towards Nineveh. But there is a second difference here, and it's subtle, but it is very, very important. Very important to the story. Uh, God had has been unfolding this plan of mercy throughout this entire story. Right. It is slowly opened up. God is demonstrating what he's planning to do. We know that all of the nations of the world were to be blessed through Israel. And as we move along, it is it's 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 been unfolding. So here in chapter one, verse two, I want you to go there and I want you to see that the word the words that God use God, God uses here in verse two he says, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city and cry against it. Against it being the word that's used here. Now, if we flip back over to Jonah, chapter three. And we look at verse two, it says, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it, the proclam- proclaim to it, the proclamation, which I am going to tell you. Now, there are a couple things to say. If your version doesn't say that, we're going to get to that. Okay. Um, so we, he tells him to proclaim to it, the proclamation. Some of your versions may say, call out to it or preach to it or preach unto it. If you have an ESV, and I do know that there's a lot of people in here that do use uh, an ESV, um, it will say the same thing as chapter one. It will say that to go to Nineveh and 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 uh, call against it, right? The message that I tell you. Now, I did, and it, this took a lot of time. I went through every single biblical translation that I could possibly look at, and I only found two that say and call against it here in chapter three. There's only two. There was the ESV. And there was one obscure translation that I had never even heard of before. They were the only two that used against it. What, I'm, what I will say is that the Hebrew lends itself very much so. The majority reading on this passage is that you are to go to Nineveh and preach to, not necessarily against. And it is the difference between those two words that I will demonstrate as we get into what Jonah actually says uh, to these people. But at any rate, Jonah makes his way to Nineveh. He has, he has been, he has come up onto the shore from the fish's mouth and he has made his way to Nineveh. Now it says it was a three days walk. That doesn't mean that Jonah walked for three days to get to Nineveh. Depending on where the fish had spit up Jonah, it would have been anywhere between five in a five and 700 miles journey to get to the city of Nineveh. This was a massive undertaking. It would have taken him far longer than three days. When he says three day with that Nineveh is a three day walk. It takes three days of walking to walk around the circumference of Nineveh. Nineveh is a massive city. And that's what he is, uh, is communicating here. Uh, it was exceedingly great in size. Now, if you notice in verse 3, it says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Do you have a footnote there? 
My guess is that you probably do. It says that it is a great city to God. And that is literally what the Hebrew reads. The word that takes place there is the word Elohim. And that word, now in your footnote, you'll probably notice, does the God there have a capital G or a lowercase g? If it has either or, it is because that's how it's being interpreted. It's, it's, this has always been a difficult passage throughout the years. We don't know if this has just been a great city uh, to God himself, capital G, right? And we also don't know if it's a great city to gods in general because that word Elohim is used for both in the Old Testament. So uh, it's used uh, in right, right there in, in the beginning of Genesis. Then God said, let us make man in our image. That word for God is Elohim at the, at the tail end of Genesis chapter one. And it's speaking about God. And it's interesting because when God references himself, it's plural, right? Let us make man in our image, but God is one, right? Of course, here in, we would say that that's obviously a sign of, of the fact that God is triune. It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That Those three persons are the one being that is God himself. Uh, but it's also used in Exodus chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, uh, God says that he will execute judgment against the gods of Egypt, gods, lowercase g, these false gods. The same word that's used there is the word Elohim, right? All of this is to say, how is this a great city to God? This is, this is to say that Nineveh was very, very religious. We had said, I had said whenever I was introducing the book of Jonah that Nineveh was this town that was a great military capital. It was a great political capital, but it was also a great religious capital. Here, uh, even in the time of Jonah, some 800 years before Christ, there was a temple that was made to the goddess. Uh, her name was Ishtar. Not to be confused, there is no Ishtar Easter thing, by the way, I, just in case, because I know we've all heard that recently. But this temple of Ishtar had been standing for 1,500 years already in the time of Jonah. This was a very devout town. It was They were very rooted uh, in their paganism, uh, along with many other newer temples to other gods. Um, but it's the fact that this town is so rooted in their paganism. They're so rooted to their other gods that it makes their reaction even more amazing, right? Because this was not just like a bunch of people that didn't know what they believed. This was, these people were rooted. So it says here in verse four that Jonah began, to, uh, he then for a whole day walking through the city, he cries out yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. This is the proclamation that God had given to Jonah to go and proclaim to the people of Nineveh. And there is a lot that we can gather uh, from these words, and we are about to. But why would these eight words produce such a response? How could these eight words make someone who does not know God then believe in God? Right? It, this, there, there's, it, it's almost as if there is, is an incomplete message. These people, like as I said before, they were rooted in their beliefs. They were rooted in their polytheism. They worshipped many gods. They had no concept of one holy and righteous God. They had, their only concept was many. And, and, uh, uh, and not only that, they were very wicked. Why would God call out to these people? He says it in Jonah chapter 1 that their wickedness had come up before me. We've talked ad nauseum, and I don't want to get, I'm not going to get so far into the details of what, of what Nineveh did, but, but, but who Nineveh was. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, their wickedness had come up to such a point where it had come before God on his throne, and now it was time to act. 
Now it was time to do something to these people uh, in Nineveh. And they were completely unsuspecting. They had no clue that God was coming to them in judgment or that he planned to come to them in judgment. They were just existing in their own wickedness, going to and from, going, I'm sure, to their labor and coming back home to their families. They were completely unsuspecting of that which God was about to speak. And now here this Israelite shows up. And I have, I, we talked about before that they did not have a very friendly or, or a, a very friendly view of Israelites. They hated Israelites. Israelites were their most hated enemies on the face of the planet. And in comes walking this Ninevite or in, this Israelite into Nineveh in the place where he is hated more than anywhere else on the planet. And he begins to threaten them. This is a threat. That is given by God. That's exactly what this is. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That is a statement. This is going to happen. Now, from our perspective, I want you to try to take your 20, you know, uh, 21st century uh, 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 Western brain. And I want you to try to go into the mind of, of a Ninevite here in 800 BC. You know, from our perspective, uh, we know that this is not simply just a threat. This is not an idle threat because it is a threat that is coming from God Almighty himself. But we have an understanding of the one true living God. These Ninevites don't. They don't. These Assyrians have no concept. Uh, and, and it is littered. While we can read these eight words and we can see that it is littered with meaningful terms because we know the one true living God and we know what the Bible says, right? He says in 40 days, in 40 days, that is not an arbitrary number that God gives that this judgment is going to be coming to them. What else can you think of in scripture over 40 days? The flood, right? In the flood, it, it rained on the earth. Everything was covered in water for 40 days and 40 nights, right? There, there's, there's ties to the flood, and that is the archetypal. This, that is, that is the, the picture outside of the cross, outside of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The clearest picture of God's judgment against sin is the flood. It means something. And not only that, but here at the very end, look at, look at here in, in verse 4. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Hebrew word that's used there for overthrown is the word to overturn. And it's still going to be true. We're going to see there's two different uses for that exact word, but it is to turn over, to turn upside down on its head, or to even utterly destroy. These are the different meanings that that word can, can use here. And, and uh, the reason why we know this is because the same Hebrew word that God is using to promise, promising judgment on Nineveh is exactly the same word that he uses seven times, seven times communicating what he was going to do to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He is talking about utter and complete destruction. Now, even though we may see how, what this threat means and how serious this threat is, these people did not, did not. And, and I want you to think about what that would be like to be clueless about this, to have no concept of this God. Right, who is coming in and issuing this threat, and not only from the, the threat of from God, but through the mouth of an Israelite, one that, that they couldn't stand. It was actual, true, real racism was taking on here in this place. So uh, these eight words spoken. Okay, so it says, then in verse five, then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Guys, this would be this would be like like a stranger, right? A stranger coming up to us on the side of the road and saying, hey, Buddha just told me that uh, a tree is going to fall on your car. 
Like, I'm like when you're on your way to work. Like, wait a minute. Like, what does any of this even mean? Who is that? I, I mean, I know that people like have like little Buddha statues at their house or whatever. But like, what does that even mean? As a matter of fact, don't don't. I'm a Christian. I believe in one true living God. You're not going to come to me and tell me that Buddha said a, a tree is going to fall on my. This is super weird, and I'm not going to think much of it. Right? I would just, you would just, that guy's crazy, carry on about your day. But this is almost the same circumstance. And these people repent in such a way that they call a fast, they put on sackcloth from the least of them to the greatest of them. This is a massive reaction that those words would bring a city. And this, guys, this is the, this is the entire city. How many people? Anywhere between three and 600,000 people who then come, they put on sackcloth. And what was sackcloth? What was the significance of, of putting on sackcloth? It might not seem like much to us here in our day, but in the Near East, this was a, this was a, a major statement that someone could make. Uh, sackcloth was, was typically made of black goat hair. It was very coarse. I think the, the closest thing that we could, um, that we could, I don't know, you see like those old like sweaters that are made of hair or whatever that, that are, are, it kills you to, to wear. They're super uncomfortable. It'd be like putting on a potato sack almost. It's just, it's, it's meant uh, to, to be uncomfortable. And what it signified was, it was this deep state of mourning, of, of brokenness, right? Typically what happens if somebody in your family died, what everyone would do in the family is they would all put on sackcloth. And this was to demonstrate how sad they were, how, how broken they were over the passing of, of their loved one. Uh, and that's, that's what we get. But we know from the next verse, if you go down to verse uh, six, and this is not in our text today, but I want it, this goes for effect here. It says, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on ashes. So typically you would see in these moments of repentance, people would put on the sackcloth and then they would cover their head with dust or with ashes and they would make a pile of it and they would sit in it. And that also had a very specific meaning. Um, it, was, uh, it was to demonstrate to everyone around more so to God or gods. This was, a, this was not specific to Israel. This was a Near Eastern tradition. Everybody in the region practiced this type of thing. But what it meant is that they were absolutely desolate, that they were utterly ruined, right? It was an outward sign of what was taking place in the heart. It was the most pitiful state that one could be in. And it was not reserved just simply for people who were non-kings. We remember King David, after he sinned with Bathsheba, right? And after he had had Uriah murdered, when, when Nathan the prophet had come to him and said that, that, that God is going to levy judgment against you for the sins that you've committed, and he is going to take your firstborn son. What does David do? Sackcloth and ashes. This is a state of repentance, uh, one that is done outward. It is, it is the, the idea of it is that, that there is no one who could only be helped if mercy were shown to him. Hopeless. One dressed like a beggar, right? And covered in dust and ashes because he is in fact but dust and ashes. It is a opening a demonstration to those around you and to God of just how broken 
one could be. So when we see that this entire city was coming in repentance, it wasn't just a change of mind, which is what repentance means. It wasn't just simply a change of heart. It was a breaking open of the sin that they had committed and that they knew that they deserved. That's what this is. So how is it that this simple message could cause such a wave of deep repentance? What if God had already been working the soil in Nineveh, preparing them for this? Because that is exactly what was happening. We know that words in and of themselves are not going to cause anyone to repent, right? The action of God must go along with it, right? So in this instance, in this instance, God had been working. So in the, there, there's a lot of really rich information here. And guys, what's crazy about this is most of this information is from archaeological findings. Most of this information that I'm about to give you about, this is stuff that has been discovered after the fact, okay? So in Assyria, there had been a lot of political unrest. Everything leading in Assyria or in, in, the, in the empire of Assyria, where Nineveh is a city of, there had been a lot of political unrest. Uh, there was a brand new king that had just been installed. His name was Shalmaneser IV. And this king comes in and takes, winds up taking over rulership of the entire country. But usually, right, when there's an exchange of power, it takes a while before the control of that one king goes out over the entire empire or the entire nation. It takes a while. He's getting, he's getting familiar. He's setting his own people in place. Um, and, and what's happening is, is because Nineveh sits further out in, in, the, in the nation, he, uh, the areas are being ruled by regional rulers, prefects, governors, things like that. They, they're the ones who are really in charge um, over uh, the city of Nineveh. And many of these prefects and governors and commanders in chief and all of these high-ranking people, many of them had questionable loyalties, let's say. They weren't really happy with the fact that Shalmaneser IV was placed as king over Assyria. And that began to cause a lot of political unrest. We saw uprisings, revolts, things like this started happening. And uh, that can unsettle a country. Civil war has, a, has the ability to do that. And that's exactly what was taking place in Nineveh. Now, uh, why is this uh, important? Well, Nineveh was a military capital. Nineveh, there were two commanders in chief. It would have been the one, low, the one level right below the king himself. It was, these are the top guys. They're sat, Nineveh sits in the middle, 50, within 50 miles of two of these commanders in chief. And these two commanders in chief were in control of the entire army. Almost 80% of all of the troops were under the control of these two men. And Nineveh sat right in the middle of both of them. Okay? One one army of multi hundreds of thousands strong were their their goal was to was to control the north uh, east border and then the other side they were to control the northwest border. This was the security force for the entire empire, and Nineveh was the cream of the Oreo. They were right smack dab in in the middle. Um, the, these two men, they were, they would have been called Tartanu or that, that's, I think I'm pronouncing the word right, but that's what their role was. These, these commanders, uh, in chief, but see, it's not in these, these armies were going to and fro. They were shutting down, uh, revolts. There was a battle happening all over the place. There was always people in and out. People were unsure of their futures. They were, it was a bad times, uh, in Nineveh, but not only that, 
God also had appointed a massive plague. There was a plague that had come upon these people as they were out to battle. It was a septicemic plague is, is uh, what I was able to find out about that. But there were people dying from sickness left and right during this time in Nineveh. If that wasn't enough, uh, there was also massive famines that were taking place around the land. And, you know, if, if you guys have seen like any uh, or done any study on, on pagan cultures, anytime these things happen, they are, you know, people are always looking towards their gods to, to settle these types of things. That's where sacrifices come in and, and all of these other things. I, this place is it's, it's in turmoil. Nineveh is in turmoil. And not only that, this is the clincher, because these people were very, very, very good record keepers of solar eclipses, of all things. And there happened to have been two during this time. And in the records of these solar eclipses, there were prophecies attached to it. And both prophecies, I'm not going to say they were, these were prophecies from God, I just found this interesting, that the prophecies that were tied to these solar eclipses were the demise of Nineveh. And this would have been communicated to the people in Nineveh. Destruction was coming upon them, and they already knew it. It was just, when is it actually going to take place? And now, in comes Jonah, the Israelite, the beacon of mercy himself, right? He comes walking into Nineveh. Actually, the, beautiful, the, 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 the word calls uh, those who, who, who come in, uh, who bring uh, tidings of good cheer, that they have beautiful feet. Beautiful feet are the, are, 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 the, are the feet of the preacher, the one who brings in good news. And he does have beautiful feet, but he's bringing them a message of destruction, right? We had looked at the words that he said, that, that uh, yet in 40 days, Nineveh was going to be destroyed. You realize in this statement that he makes, he doesn't even mention the word repent. He doesn't even say, turn, therefore, turn from your ways. Therefore, turn from, from the things that displease God. And the people come flooding from their homes in the lowest state they could possibly be in. God had prepared Nineveh for repentance. Period. That is the only way something like this could happen. And he demonstrates this mercy by having Jonah go in and preach to it, not against it. Preach to it, destruction. You might say, um, "Where's the mercy in that?" Right? Like, where is the where where is the mercy? Like, hey, by the way, you're all going to be destroyed, and behold, my mercy. Right? Like, uh, where where is that? Well, um, as I had said before in this message, there were specific words that would relate to God's judgment that were built in. Right? We have the idea of the flood in Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a major difference between Sodom and Gomorrah and the flood and Nineveh. You see, Nineveh was threatened. Do you know who was not threatened? The world when God flooded it. Do you know who was not threatened? Sodom and Gomorrah before brimstone and hellfire rained down from God in heaven. There was no prophet. There was nothing. God simply carried out his execution of judgment on these places, and he did so without warning. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 17, Jesus, at these fact, the fact that these men 
and women and children in this city, that the fact that they were being threatened, Jesus himself saw this as a mercy. In Luke chapter 17, this is what, this is what Christ says. He says, in the days of Noah, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. There was no warning. The same with the days of Lot. They were eating and they were drinking, buying, selling, planting, and building until Lot went out from Sodom. And it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. No warning, no preaching. The fact that there is a man who comes into this city and proclaims against it, yet in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. That in and of itself, the message alone is merciful. Great mercy in it. The Lord had meant for Nineveh to be warned. And that message was to be brought by a preacher. An incredibly, un, an incredibly unimpressive preacher. Right? With an incomplete message. Only the message of destruction. To a people that were not his covenant people. That's important here. Assyria, these, these Assyrians were not his covenant people. With just a sliver of special revelation. Just a dusting of it. And in that, because God moved on just that little bit of special revelation, the entire nation, the entire city, repented. And remember, guys, this story of, 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 of Jonah, as we've gone through this, this is to demonstrate a shame. This is to shame the nation of Israel. Because while this just with just this sliver of special revelation brought by a preacher who didn't even really want to be there, right? He had fleed. We see people repenting in sackcloth and ashes as opposed to the very nation that God had set his love upon who had only ever received this tremendous amount of special revelation, right? They, were, they received the oracle. They received all the oracles. They received the law. God gave them the law inscripted on tablets of stone. These are people that he had freed from slavery, people that he had set free from their bondage, people that he had made known to them, I am your God and you are my people and I love you because I love you. Those people would not repent. They didn't want to turn from their sin to God. But here we have these barbarians who are given nothing, a morsel, a morsel from the table. And they come in sackcloth and ashes before a holy God. This is a powerful moment. A powerful moment. And it is something that, 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 was, that was going to, to, to show an image of what God had planned to do. But he wasn't just going to give the world a morsel. He was going to give the world something a whole lot more. And we will get to that. But I want you to imagine for a moment the wake-up call that this would have been for Jonah. Coming from the place that he's from. From the nation of Israel. Everyone that he's staring at, literally every person that he can see, is, is, is wearing their guilt as a garment. They all accept for him. He was wearing the garments that he was wearing when he came out of the whale. Where he said, you know what, God, thank you for saving my life. And never, not one time mentioned his own sin. Not once only commented on the grace that God had shown him. That is exactly, exactly what Israel was doing. 
But this was perhaps the first time in Jonah's life. I can't say for certain. The Bible doesn't tell us. But this is perhaps for the first time what seeing a true fear and reverence for God. This might be the first time he saw what that actually looked like. And I'm willing to bet that it shook him to the very core of his nature. He was seeing people not as spoiled sons and daughters that had received all the oracles from God. But he was looking at barbarians who had literally no hope apart from the mercy of Yahweh. He learned a little something about repentance that day. And I think that if we are to look at this in our day, we have much to learn about repentance from this moment, right? Because we are all here in this church. We have all known the mercy of God. We have all known the goodness of God. I'm sure every one of us in here would claim to do that. But what happens when we see the repentance of someone who comes to know Christ, who starts to chop off the sin that's in their life? And here we are sitting here struggling with this little thing that we don't want to give up. Right? It's shaming. It's shaming. It's seeing somebody who's, who's able to lop off sexual impurities. But, we, but we're sitting here and we claim to know Christ, but we're not ready to chop that thing off yet. This is exactly what was happening here. But I want you to notice, guys, notice the simplicity of this. There were no clever words that were spoken by Jonah. There were no firework shows. There were no strobe lights or smoke machines. There were no helicopters or, or, or like, like the Hollywood lights that you can see. from. There was nothing. There were no bells and whistles. It was simply one man that God had sent with his word in hand, giving his word to them. And the result was revival. That is what we are seeing here in the book of Jonah. There was a man a long time ago by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And he had preached to a group in a town called Enfield who were very, very resistant to revival. He was part of this, of this uh, new side um, I might be getting that wrong. Forgive me. I'm actually supposed to know that. It's part of what, what I'm going to be testing on here shortly. Uh, but he had, he, he had adopted this idea of revival, that God was going to be waking people up in a great display like that of Nineveh. And he went to this particular group of people in Enfield who were anti-revival, very much anti-revival. And he had brought a little sermon with him, and that sermon was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And what's unique about this is that this sermon itself had already been preached by Jonathan Edwards to his home church in Northampton. And it got zero reaction from his church, home church in Northampton. Nothing. So here he comes out to these, this group of, of, of self-professed believers and he brings this same message that he had just got done preaching in his home church in Northampton. And he stands up and he begins to read off of the pages. It's nothing. I mean, he was a powerful preacher. I'm sure he did it with much gusto and in a very, in a very uh, uh, powerful way. But he couldn't even get halfway through the sermon because of the cries of the people who were there. These anti-revivalist people who were hearing these words preached from a paper from Jonathan Edwards, he couldn't even make it all the way through his sermon because people were broken over their sin. 
They had never heard preaching like that before in their entire lives. And they were utterly broken because God was moving through the, through the words of the preacher. And oh, Jonathan Edwards was an amazing preacher. Absolutely. But I don't care. You could have the, the golden tongue of John Chrysostom himself. If God is not moving, not one person will be convicted over their sin. God must move. And in this situation, they moved. He didn't get to finish his sermon that day. Because the people were unconsolable. This is the Great Awakening. That is American history. We are seeing the exact same thing. Many, many, many years. A thousand years prior to Jonathan Edwards even come, even being a person on the planet. God works revival. And there is a reality that must be communicated to those who do not know God, church. And this is the message of destruction. Is that a fun thing to talk about? No, I'm telling you the days leading up to giving this sermon, I was broken over this. I was up until 3.30 in the morning last night, working on this, going over every single word hurting on the inside because I don't like talking about this, but there is a message of destruction that God has given us, not only in his word, but in our hearts. Back, at, back when, I was, when I was doing all of the, all of the, the things that I was doing, the, the drugs and the alcohol and the way that I was living my life, I knew that there was going to be a day that I died and that I was going to sit in front of God and that I was guilty. And I would drown that out every day because I knew that reality was coming for me. I knew it. That is the truth of this message. That there is a thrice holy God. And that word holy means something. He cannot look upon sin. He will not look upon sin. He is just and he will carry out his judgment against it. He is merciful. Yes, God is merciful and he is patient and he is good. But the fact that he is good is our biggest problem. Because we are not good. He has given his law on tablets of stone and he has imprinted that law in every single one of our hearts. And when we do that, which is unpleasing to him, we know that we're doing wrong. And every single person from the greatest of us to the least of us have broken every single law in every shape, form, and fashion. And every single one of us has an appointment with him. He has promised that there is a day marked out, the great and terrible day of the Lord, where he will execute his judgment on all sin and all of those who practice it. And that judgment will be executed by the casting of those who have spit in his face with their lives, and they will be cast into the fiery hell for all eternity. That is the message of destruction. And I am in pain bringing you this message of destruction, but he has promised this and it is a message that must go out. But it is because in light of that message, you see, 
Jonah, when he comes to Nineveh, he brings only that message of destruction. Today, we are not only left with that message of destruction. And what we see in that, we saw in our very own liturgy today, church, the very means by which we worship. Look, look at your, at your bulletin. We give a confession of sin. We acknowledge that God's law has stood in our, in when we had you read from the book number five, we admit that we have not in any place kept his law, that we have not loved him with all of our heart and with all of our mind and all of our strength. And we have not loved our neighbors as we should ourselves. But we get the rest of the message. We have an, a complete message today. We have an assurance of pardon if we belong to him. But guys, this message of destruction is so vitally important to the gospel because it is against that backdrop, against the backdrop, this, this blackness, this hopelessness, this sackcloth and ashes. I am but dust and there is no hope for me. That is when Christ in all of his glory, in all of his light comes through. And we see this savior, this one who was sent, this ultimate mercy of God that he would set people free from their sin, that he came to give them life and life abundantly can only be that beautiful against the backdrop of myself in my barrenness and the hopelessness of my state apart from a savior. The message of God must come in its fullness. And that begins with the message of destruction. And it's not if, it is when, if I do not belong to Christ. Why are oh, you guys are Christian nuts, man. God is loving. God is forgiving. Yes, I have cheated on my spouse. Yes, I have uh, uh, committed sins in my past. Yes, I have lied and I have cursed and I have thought evil thoughts all day long, but God forgives. God does forgive. But when God forgives and you have received his spirit and you have beheld what I am truly, and I have beheld what God is truly, who God is truly, I cannot run from those things fast enough because the God who has spared his son has freed me from those things. And I will be literally, and I'm not cursing here, I will be damned before I turn back to the things that my God hates. This is the work of God when a sinner has, a sinner has had it revealed to him of who he truly is and who God truly is. So I'm asking you today, church, when you repent before God, trembling, is it because you know who he is? Is it because you recognize who you truly are? Has God demonstrated his love and his mercy? This is a book of compassion. This is a story of compassion. I don't mean to beat you over the head with your own sin. That's not my, my point here today. But do you understand how glorious Christ is? Do you understand the beauty of what that means that God does not see us as we are, but he sees us as Christ was, that he doesn't treat us like enemies, that yet in 40 days our body may die, but we will not be destroyed, utterly ruined. We will be with him as sons and his daughters. Do you understand? That is what I'm pleading with you today. 
And these should be our prayers for the people that don't know him. We should be praying for revival, that it happens. It is through this message, this message right here, that, that, that brands are plucked from the fire. You were all at one point in time, brands smoldering in the fire, waiting for the end. And it is through this message that you were plucked from it. It is through this message that sin is being put to death in the people's life. People that used to drink or used to use drugs now no longer do that. People who used to go out and they used to curse, every word that came out of their mouth was a curse against their fellow brethren or against God himself. They stopped doing that. People who, who were cheating on their wives become, become one-woman one men and vice versa. We see sin being put to death because of this message that Jonah gave and the one that I am giving to you today. It is through this message where joys uh, that, that we had were, were once destroying us, we lay those things aside. It's through this message that marriages are restored, that life is restored. Places where there was formerly brokenness is now being built. This is the message whereby which cities have been restored, whereby nations have been restored. And it is through this message that the very nation that we live in today can be restored. It's not a matter of if destruction is coming. It is a matter of when. Now, what will you do? What will you do? Notice in Jonah's message, and I've hit this twice already, and I'm, we're about to finish up. I'm coming here down to the end. There was no message of repentance. None. And when those people put on the sackcloth and the ashes, I want you to go down. Let's look at verse 9. We'll get this into far greater detail next week. They do all of this. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. They didn't even have any idea whether God was going to do it or not going to do it. But they knew that there was only one who might. And that was him. And they had, they had to do something. They had to appeal to him in some way. And they even went so far as to call a fast for their animals. And they put sackcloth on their animals. I love the idea of this. Like the dog running around in sackcloth and with ashes on his head, not having any idea. There was a repentance to the, if they could have put sackcloth and ashes over their farmland, they would have done it. Abandoning everything that this God might have mercy. Church, that is true repentance and fear of God. And we see it pouring off the pages. Oh, the great kindness and compassion of God, the mercy of God. And I'm gonna finish by reading this passage out of Second Chronicles chapter seven. I'm sure it's one that many of you know by heart. The Lord says, if my people who are called by my name, if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will, heal, I will heal their land. Lord, may that be so. May that be so. How will he forgive their sin? Because he is kind and gracious and compassionate. 
He sent his son to suffer the death that we all deserve on the cross. The sins of his people. So that when he would demonstrate to us the sinfulness of our state, the hopelessness of our state, we would claw and we would grab for a savior, like one who is literally drowning in the ocean, right? But that God would come in and he would pluck us out and he would save his people, that he would set us free from the bondage of our sin and that we would obey him and that we would rest not in our works, not in me trying to be a good person, not in me trying so hard to put these bad things out of my life, but that we would only resort to the only hope that any of us have ever had and ever will have, the only hope that anyone could possibly have, and that is the one who lived perfectly in my place and who made me right before God. And it is through his work, through the fact that he has conquered death, that we now receive the Holy Spirit and that he comes in and he changes our mind and he changes our hearts to discard the way that we used to be and that we seek to walk in holiness before God Almighty, and that we look expectantly on the day when Christ returns on that terrible day, but it will not be terrible for us because we have a Savior. And that day will be a day of great joy. It will be terrible, but it will be a day of great joy for those whom he set his love upon. Church, I want you to remember this. Let this sink into the deep, to the depths of you. Are you struggling with sin? Read that. Let's pray. Oh God, kind and merciful, holy, holy, holy God, who did not spare his own son, the penalties of sin that he never committed. Oh God, we ask that you would work an act of repentance in your people today. That we might examine the sins in our life, Lord. That we might nail those to the cross. That we might walk in holiness, Lord. That we might enjoy you. Lord, but God, I plead for you. I plead for the, for the sake of your people, Lord, that you would not leave us there. That we would have overwhelming joy, that we would have overwhelming peace, Lord, knowing that there is not one single thing that we can do from this day on that will separate the love that you have from us and that was earned by Christ, Lord. May he receive much glory today. May he be praised beyond all measure today because of who he is, God in the flesh, the second person in the Trinity, Lord. And may we recognize who we are in this, that we bring nothing but dust in ashes to you, Lord, that you are the Savior, that you are God. Oh God, deal with us. Let us not walk in a way that is unpleasing to you. We love you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your glory. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your merci merciful, merciful act towards us. Thank you for the love. You are love. And we thank you for setting that upon us. Oh God, we love you. We need you. We lift you up in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll please stand. Our benediction today, as it always does, comes from number six. And it is important to remember this. You are God's people. You are God's people. Church.
And every single one of these blessings applies to you, which is why we give this. And it is not me blessing you. I'm no priest. This is the Lord blessing you. These words are for you. And the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace. Amen. We will now sing the doxology.